Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, earlier this week, CFL Commissioner announced a plan for a possible September date. If we face a second wave, will that CFL season be happening? Well, the Commissioner, Randy Ambrosi, joins us to talk about that. John Best from the Bay Observer also talks about programs to discuss for financial aid for cities and the Sobe situation and the Commonwealth Games bid. A lot on the plate for city councillors, and we'll talk about that with John Best. And experts are saying that we will face a second wave of COVID-19. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Is Canada prepared? We'll find out. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've had a great deal of talk about a possible second wave, and there seems to be a consensus among the experts, yeah, that it is going to happen, but we're not quite sure just how impactful it's going to be. Uh, so we'll go get into that because obviously that's going to have a, a certain sort of influence over a number of things that we've got planned and people are trying to plan, including, by the way, uh, the return of professional sports in various shapes and forms. Uh, you've heard on CHML Sports this morning, of course, the NHL is trying to get something going. Uh, Major League Baseball is trying to work on a formula. And so is the Canadian Football League. And uh, it's uh, not without its challenges, to be sure. Earlier this week, uh, CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi held a uh, virtual town hall for season ticket holders from coast to coast. Uh, very informative, very uh, uh, insightful about what's going on. It was uh, great, I'm sure, to get the feedback. And we wanted to get an update on what is happening uh, with uh, the CFL this year because uh, there's great anticipation. Before all this stuff started with COVID, uh, there was a great anticipation about the Tiger Cats football season this year, uh, a job that needed to be completed, uh, that being getting to the Great Cup last year and trying to win it this year. And that may still be happening. But to find out exactly how and when, uh, let's bring the commissioner of the Canadian Football League back to the program. Randy Ambrosi joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Randy, how are you doing this morning? I'm excellent, Bill, and how are you? Uh, top of the world. Uh, looking forward to a great weekend coming up and uh, some news. I uh, listened with great interest to the virtual town hall you did the other day, Randy. And uh, I, I know that you always want to get feedback. And the fact that the season ticket holders had a chance to weigh in and ask you some questions about some clarity on this. But uh, since you and I talked a few weeks ago about this, uh, there has been a lot of conversation and some progress made as to how you guys may be going forward on this. Maybe you could bring us up to speed, Randy. Yeah, Bill, well, thank you, and, and you sound remarkably energized today, by the way. It's a pleasure <laughs> to, it's a pleasure to hear somebody with that kind of passion. So, uh, nice to be with you. Uh, yeah, Bill, we basically, uh, are trying to, uh, you know, figure out a strategy, uh, to get our players on the field and, and have a, and have a truncated season, a meaningful season. Uh, culminating in a Grey Cup. So, you know, first of all, we, we announced that we're going to change our Grey Cup model. Uh, we'll go to a win and host, which is, which is fun. So ev- basically every team is in the running. And uh, we had to cancel, unfortunately, our touchdown Atlantic game, which was disappointing. But the, but the real story is that we are going to continue to work to see if we can't get a CFL season in. And we're looking at all scenarios on, on how we might be able to make that happen. And as you said, uh, the Tiger Cats have a staggeringly good football team, and I know they would love nothing more than uh, another kick at the can. Let's let's talk about that, because there, this is not just a matter of you and the owners sitting down having a conference call and saying, okay, how can we work this out? There's a lot of players here, Randy, uh, the Players Association, for one, uh, the owners, uh, a number of corporate sponsors that are involved in this. Uh, are, are you gaining feedback from ev- everybody here, all of the interested parties, uh, all the people that have, have uh, something in this, uh, you know, have anteed up into this whole situation to see what, what, what they're looking for? Yeah, every 
group that you just mentioned would like to see us play. You know, I we are talking to the Players uh, Association uh, frequently. They want to play if we can. Of course, Bill, they want it to be done safely, and there's yep. a lot of uh, there's a lot of issues that will have to be investigated and resolved before we can. Uh, you know, get our players to a training camp and then ultimately through a season in a, in a, with as much safety as we possibly can. But, you know, talking with our broadcast partner, TSN, they would like to get a season in, talking to all of our sponsors and partners. They would love nothing more than to see us play. So I think we got a lot of goodwill on our side, a lot of positive energy on our side. And now, uh, as they often say, the devil's in the details. Well, and those details are uh, about as clear as mud right now, and, and that's through no doing of yours, obviously, Randy. Uh, we've got to wait and see just what's going to happen. We just mentioned before you joined us here, but, you know, the, this talk about a second wave, and maybe it's not going to be that consequential. We don't know yet. But uh, you are also dealing with, uh, well, some travel restrictions that are in place right now, first of all, across the border, but, I mean, even interprovincial situations like this, uh, especially in Quebec, uh, there are stay-at-home orders in some of these cities. I mean, there's got to be some clarification on that before anybody drops a puck or kicks a football in this country. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more, Bill. And obviously, so much of this, as much as we are going to try to plan to make it happen, a lot of tumblers will have to fall our way in order to uh, to see it across the finish line. But, Bill, you know, we said uh, from the beginning, uh, this is one of those times for all of us, that your listeners my family, families from coast to coast, uh, the virus is really in charge. And uh, and it's going to dictate a lot of what we can and can't do. But the most important thing is the safety and health of Canadians. And, uh, and, we, and we will make that our number one priority. So I don't want to say you've hit the pause button here, but you're waiting to see exactly what's going to happen. And the government's going to have to have a role on that, too. I'm sure there's discussions that we're going to get to in just a couple of seconds. But as you look forward, Randy, I mean, you know, more so maybe than even, for instance, the NFL, because they usually don't start till after Labor Day anyway. And now we're talking about a season that may not start until after Labor Day on this side of the border. And I, I got... By the way, no problem with that. We have played Grey Cups in the first week of December in, in the past. Uh, I, I know it can be chilly some places, and but you know it was pretty chilly in Calgary last year, and I, we bundled up and we, we we survived it and we did fine. So that's that's not the problem. Weather's not going to be the problem. I guess the concern right now is okay. Even if they said okay, it's a go, Randy. There's preparations to be made. So with that in mind, there's got to be some date that you say, look at if it's not coming together by then, we're going to have to go to plan B. Do you have that date in mind yet? Bill, we're actually thinking about it a little bit differently. Rather than using uh, a time continuum, we're using an information continuum. Okay. There, there will be a point at which we have enough information to make a decision one way or the other. And, uh, and of course, right now, that, uh, that's not the case. But there will be a moment at some point, uh, you know, uh, between here and there, where we say we now know what we needed to know, and we can then make our, our final decisions. But it's uh, for those of us that have been following this league for as many years, uh, it, it's got to be comforting to know that the, the, the players, the, the, the people that you're talking to here, the, the ones that we've just listed, the corporate sponsors, the players themselves and, and others, uh, I'm, I'm getting the sense from what you're saying here, Randy, and what you said at the, uh, the virtual town hall the other day, uh, the attitude uh, around the league and around all those stakeholders is uh, how can we make this happen? Not should we make it happen, but let's try to make this happen. Yeah, to the best of our ability, uh, 
look, it's a remarkable part of what we are all about as Canadian sports. Canadians are, are sports crazy. Uh, we it, it makes us feel better, uh, an opportunity to perform for Canadian football fans and, and sports fans. Is, is an important part of what I think will become the recovery time when the when this crisis passes. So, Bill, we got a lot of motivation to play if we can, but we also have good reasons to make uh, player safety and public safety our number one priority. And, and, you know, as we talked at the beginning here, I mean, you guys aren't the only one in this boat right now. Professional leagues right across North America, right around the world, I guess, are facing similar crises and similar problems like this. Uh, let's talk about one of the other elements to this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you've appeared before a parliamentary committee and, t- and talked to them about uh, some of the challenges that the, this league is facing. Uh, this is not new. Uh, Randy, uh, you and I were both involved back in the old days of actually doing telethons back in the early 1990s to raise money for some of the CFL teams. Those are pretty dark days. Uh, those days uh, seem to be way, way back in the rearview mirror, and now a crisis not of your own doing has put you right back in this situation. Uh what is the situation right now, as you talk to the federal government and, and to other uh, stakeholders in this, that you'd like to have uh, come to the table and be part of this? Yeah, you know, I'd say in some respects, I'd characterize the whole thing as quite positive. Look, the discussions with the federal government have been very constructive. We wanted them to understand the magnitude of the of the problem, not just for 2020, but Bill, I think it's safe to say for sports and businesses in general, this problem is going to leak into into 2021 and maybe beyond. There's a lot of disruption to the economy that's happening today, and you know we're going to have to fight our way through that, and we will. Uh, Canadians are resilient, and we will find our way through the fog. But uh, we wanted the federal government to understand the, the magnitude of the crisis. They have been very receptive to that message. They've asked us to look at some of the programs they've already created. Uh, we continue discussions. But, Bill, in, that's part of, part of the story. The second is, what can we do on our own to, to uh, help to solve the crisis, uh, get past this you know, what may be called the pig in the python uh, part of this, which is the fact that our revenues have gone to zero uh, and expenses never seem to go away as fast as revenues. But uh, but I'm still optimistic. And I think working with the federal government and talking with the provincial government, uh, working with our corporate partners and especially our fans, I believe that the future for this league is very bright, obviously murky today, but but long term, it's very bright. I've told the story in the past, and I just want to do this again for perspective. You know, I had the honor of being the PA announcer at Ivorwind Stadium for about 13 years, and, and the, probably the highlight of all that, and boy, there's some great moments, but uh, it was the 1996 Great Cup, and I got to do that one uh, at, uh, at the stadium. That was the Snow Bowl, of course, with the Argos and the Edmonton Eskimos. It was, a, as you remember, Randy, a great game. turned out, I mean, the weather was just terrible, but it turned out a brilliant football game, eventually won by the Argos. Uh, and just as we were finishing, I'm walking out of the press box, and Jeff Giles, who I think was the vice president of the league at the time, uh, was standing there, and I said, this this was just a great day, and he was shaking his head. He said, what? He said, I don't know how I'm going to pay these guys. I said, what guys? He says, all of them. <laughs> that, that, was the, that was the state of the league then, and, and yeah. look at how it has bounced back. And, and that's got to be heartening, Randy, to know that, look, at, we've been in this situation before, maybe even in a worse situation, and the league survived and thrived as a result of this. So, you, you know, I, you're not looking to that light at the end of the tunnel is not a train coming the other way. You, you really think that this is going to happen? I, I do, and in part because we've got uh, 
we've got owners like Mr. Young, and you know Bob is has come in and obviously passionate about Hamilton, passionate about the Tie Cats, the community. Uh, look, the the problem Bob faces and and the rest of the owners is they've been they've been what you could best call a sports philanthropist. You know, they're not you don't own a CFL franchise because it's going to make you rich. You you own it because you love the league and you love the sport and you love these communities. Uh, the problem is that the quantum of potential financial losses uh, given this COVID crisis is certainly nothing that uh, any of these owners have bargained for. But I, I go back to, I think these owners, I think our governors, our president, Scott Mitchell, uh, and his partners, I think we will find a way to fight our way through this. And beyond the crisis is an incredibly bright future for this league. Interesting that uh, in these discussions with the the feds, though, they and they steered you kind of down a road that I, maybe uh, many of us would not have thought of. Is that hey, there might actually be some uh, programs, some doors that you can knock on within existing programs that might be able to help here. So uh, I guess essentially, you, you you guys are doing your homework right now, Randy. We are, and you know, again, you give uh, full marks to a federal government and our provincial government uh, here in Ontario and across the country, frankly. They're, they're drinking from a fire hose bill. They, they're dealing with an unprecedented number of problems. Uh, industries of virtually every size, shape, and type are suffering as a result of this. Canadians, Ontarians are, are, are all uh, under stress, and these governments are working hard to try to find solutions. Uh, you know, it, None of us, not whether it whether it's uh, our our Ontario Premier or our Prime Minister or a Commissioner of a sports league, have uh, what you call pandemic experience. Uh, so we're all learning on the job. Uh, almost out of time here, and I know you've got a busy schedule. I really appreciate you taking some time for us today, Randy. Uh, one email here from uh, Gary, though, who's listening to our conversation, says, uh, what is the uh, the stadium situation going to be like across the league? Obviously, with uh, physical distancing, uh, it's it's going to have a different look to it right now. Uh, I got the sense from your town hall the other day, Randy, that uh, that kind of goes under the file of to be determined later. In other words, let's let's see what else has to happen, and then you can do the mathematics about you know how many people, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's not really firmed up yet, is it? No, it's not, Bill. And, you know, I appreciate the question and thanks to Gary for asking. But uh, seriously, we're in a we're in a exploration mode and we're trying to figure out how to make these uh, how to make these how to make the playing scenario work. Uh, and, and all I can promise, Gary, and all of your listeners is that we are hard at it. Uh, Scott Mitchell and Bob are deeply committed to getting through this and uh and I hope at some point down the road I get to come back on your show, Bill, and share uh, really exciting news. Well, we've had some great conversations at Tim Horton Field over the years, you and I, and, and uh, the caretaker, and Scott, and, and so many others. And uh, here's hoping that uh, those days are not that far off. Randy, congratulations on the great work that you and everybody in the league are doing. Uh, the challenges are monumental, but uh, I, I got a pretty good feeling that you're going to find some way to, to make this thing work. We will stay in touch, though. Have a great day today. Thank you, Bill. All the best. Randy Ambrosi, of course, commissioner of the Canadian Football League, uh, who's uh, looking for some solutions, and uh, discussions are ongoing with everybody who's involved in this. And uh, we got to find a way to make this happen. And I, I, I got the feeling, I think there's going to be a, a, a season in some way, shape, or form, and uh, maybe even a Grey Cup in Hamilton this year. I, 2021, by the way, is going to be Hamilton's Grey Cup. That did not change. Saskatchewan's not going to have it this year. 
simply because it's not even going to be a festival or anything. It's just really going to be the game. But uh, the, the festival and everything else should come back in 2021. So that's going to be a great time for Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was an interesting week at City Council. We had the mayor on the other day, and uh, Mayor Eisenberger was talking about uh, some of the financial aid. We're going to get to that in a couple of seconds, uh, because uh, he, through the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, that's essentially everybody who's elected for office in, in any community here in the country, you're all members of that, uh, are saying, look, at, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, you've got to get us some money out here, too, because of the problems. I want to bring John Best into the conversation, uh, who, of course, is the publisher of the Bay Observer, to talk about that, and a couple of other things at Council. John, how are you doing today? Just great, Bill. It's a beautiful day. It is a lovely day, and I'm, I'm, I'm first of all happy to report that I know you and I talked about a city council meeting last week, and it got a little silly at times. And as as I read your reporting and watched what was going on in this week's council, I'm glad to report to our citizens that they they put aside that pettiness that they had last week, and found different pettiness to to to, to concentrate on this week. It just it just seems it's variations on the same theme, John. Yeah, they're not playing nice at all, Bill. Uh, this time it was uh, it was know. it was uh, Sobe bikes. This I, I time I think it has to do partly with the virtual uh, uh, the virtual council. Um, it's funny because people say that uh, you know Parliament and uh, when they've gotten virtual, the the tone is uh, is so much more polite. And and I think the reason obviously is because you don't have all that clapping and death thumping and and so on. But here uh, it seems to be the reverse. Uh, the tone seems to be uh, more personal. And and I think it's partly because they're not sitting face to face around a horseshoe. They're they're, you know, they're in this electronic uh, cocoon. And and so I think uh, it, if anything, it emboldens people uh, to be a, a little sharper in their tone. Well, and we certainly saw that, uh, especially uh, a couple of the uh, back and forths between Councillor Whitehead and Councillor Wilson uh, yeah. about what was going on with the bikes. And uh, and we should, by the way, for people that maybe have been occupied with other things, uh, the Sobe Bike Program, which I think by all accounts has been a very successful program over the last number of years here, a little bit of a slow start when it first started, but now very, very popular and successful. Uh, it's owned by Uber, and Uber pulled the rug out from under the city this year and simply said, we're not going to do this anymore. So uh, they've got some decisions to make about this program, quite aside from the, the council behavior in a second, John. Uh, my understanding is they own the bikes. They own all that stuff. Uh, Uber just ran it for them and they ran the business. So do you, do you put those in a warehouse someplace, or do you try to get the program going back up? What's, what's going on here? Well, it's a, it's a tough decision. I mean, I, uh, you know, if we didn't have this COVID issue and we didn't have this shortage, uh, I, I think council... Uh, would have very quickly probably found its way to approving it, uh, approving a bailout. Um, but uh, when you're facing a $60 million deficit, um, everything's on the table, I suppose. I mean, it's not just the bikes and the, and the uh, pads and the, the stands that are, that are city-owned. Uh, there's been millions invested in bike lanes. Um, so, I, you know, realistically, I, I think... Uh, we're we're too far down the road if you'll pardon the expression with with bicycling um i believe the staff report said there were 29,000 subscribers that's a pretty big chunk of people and yeah. and while you know there may be a certain amount of leisure biking going on there there are people that are that are trying to get to work uh on these bicycles uh or to school and uh, so it's it's a it's not an easy call to just say to hell with it let's cancel it 
Well, I mean, Max Kerman from the Arkells was on the show a week or so ago. Max was talking about, uh, obviously, the stick around here these days because they're not doing touring or anything. But Max told you, he says he bikes all over the city. I mean, you know, if he has to go down to, to any number of different places, you know, uh, or to the Y to do the workout, whatever they, whatever they can do here. And he's, he's, there's a whole attitude among, among that generation to say this is a really cool thing to do. And, and I've seen them. I, I've heard all the complaints, John, and I'm, you get them in, at the Bay Observer as well. I drove down Cannon Street and I didn't see anybody on the bikes. Uh, okay, there were going to be times when it's like that. But, and, and nobody expected they were going to be cheat to jowl there. But I mean, it is a, a, a mode of transportation. And I, I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds about the argument between Councillor Whitehead and Councillor Wilson, but your point's well taken. If we've invested in that bike infrastructure, do we just turn our back on it now? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough. Uh, I, I mean, there is a legitimate argument to be made uh, about the money uh, because of the $60 uh, million dollar, uh, bite that we're, that's been taken out of our revenue. Um, now, of course, uh, you mentioned the uh, the large city mayors of Ontario. They've made a pitch to the federal government, and I think the combined ask for Ontario is about four hundred and twenty million dollars, and that's basically to cover off the the biggest loss that all these municipalities have faced is the uh, transit issue. Yeah, that's where most of the the loss has taken place. Although there's certainly been a revenue drop as well when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the community centers and the rec areas and things like that. But if it's 400-odd million for Ontario's large municipalities, then if you extrapolate that across the country, probably the government, uh, the federal government's probably got to come up with $1.2, $1.3 billion to make every municipality whole. They're certainly not going to do it just for Ontario. So th- that's what we're facing. Um if you look at uh, what they've done so far, they they've committed about 150 million, uh, 150 billion. Sorry, uh, which I, I think most people think is going to go higher, probably up to 200 billion. Uh, it's a, it's a huge debt that we're going to assume. So I I think the municipalities will get some support, and and uh, it, so there's a bit of a timing issue around this, the SOBI issue because because if we are made whole. Uh, eventually by the federal government, then that argument goes away, the fact that we're in the middle of a COVID crisis, we can't afford any frills. So, uh, you know, I, I think I think there's a solution there. The, the one criticism of the program that I think is valid is that it only serves lower city wards. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that obviously that that's a negative when it comes to political support, because if you're a mountain councillor, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, it's easy to say, well, I, you know, it's not my issue. I don't care. Uh, so I, oddly, uh, from a political standpoint, I would almost argue for expanding the service in order for it to be, a, you know, sort of a shared responsibility. Yeah, we could do that just like they did for the uh, the transit service. That went well, didn't it, when they talked about expanding that? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I suppose if you want to get really picky, you could argue that supporting um, – Supporting the bicycles is a form of uh, area rating uh, to, to to raise a really ugly word, but you know. Yeah, but that, you know what? You know what? And and one more than one person brought this up, and I don't think anybody brought it up at the council meeting, from my memory of this. But whenever you get into programs like this, and as you say, this is really a lower city. I, I'm, I'm a big picture guy. I know what councils are going to say. Oh, come on, Bill, you got to think of the whole city. I'm thinking of the whole city. But as you said, right now, as this program existed for the last little while, it only serves the lower city wards. 
Why don't they dip into their slush fund? Why don't they dip into their slush fund, John? Uh, the, 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 you know, the 10 councillors that are not in the lower city have very little politically to lose uh, if they decide to vote it down. It's a, it's a service that's unknown uh, to uh, a big chunk of the city. So use the slush fund. I mean, they all get money from, you know, the, the, those wards. Uh, you want it in your ward. You want it right across the city. Bingo, bingo, bingo. Line up and say, okay, we're going to dedicate some of that money that comes into ours, which I still think is, is wrong because the councillors basically have that money to spend as they wish and try to curry favor with voters. Uh, I still think that should just go into a general revenue thing for infrastructure projects, but that's not going to happen, I guess, anytime soon. So spend it on this instead of building statues or whatever else they want to do with some of the money in, in each particular ward. You want the Sobe program? See how much money you got in that kitty. Well, uh, that may well be the solution. That was uh, Andrew Dreschel in his column today was uh, was suggesting that, and uh, I don't know how fully committed those uh, the, the slush fund is. Uh, I, I forget what it works out to. I think it's almost a million dollars in yeah. this word. Um, so you know that that may very well be the source of of the answer, at least for this year. Uh, when things are very tight, if there's money left in those funds, then uh, maybe that's the way to keep it alive. Um, it's going to be a bit of a logistical issue as well, just trying to find somebody to take on that software or whatever whatever is involved in operating the system. I got some interesting correspondence from somebody who suggested that Uber getting involved in this was really just a, a bit of a scam. Uh, Uber uh, has raised tremendous amounts of money but it's still losing money as a as a ride sharing service and and uh, was suggested to me in an email I got the other day that what Uber really was doing when they bought the bicycle sharing program was simply trying to get more people using the Uber app and uh, then they could go to the market and say look at look at how many more people are using the Uber app um, and use that as a means of raising more money on the uh, on the venture capital market, uh, I mean, we do know that Uber is not making money, uh, and it's you know it's kind of decimated the taxi industry, or certainly challenged the taxi industry. It's it's another one of these services like we're seeing with Google and and some of these others that have decimated the news industry. Um, you know that this kind of predatory, uh, big, massive, um, international, accountable to nobody companies. And uh, this may be another example of it. Well, because I've seen some suggestions that were even a little more clandestine than that, <clears throat> is that Uber bought this and basically sh shut it down, uh, which is eliminating a competitor. Let's face it. If you're not going to take a bike, I guess maybe you have to consider Uber now. Uh, not unlike what Labatt's did when they bought Lakeport Brewery uh, some years ago. You know, boom, they slapped a padlock on it within a couple of months. Uh, and I don't old, know. Um, uh, argument from the 30s that the big four, the big three auto companies uh, uh, shut down the, uh, the municipal uh, streetcar services in order to get people into cars. Yeah, exactly. So, and I'm not suggesting that was the mindset, but it, boy, it, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, you got to wonder about stuff like that. Listen, I got a few minutes left here, and there's there's one other issue that was not really before council, but I have talked to the mayor about this. 
Uh, earlier in the week, I had Lou Forporti on, who is now with the, well, now they call themselves the Commonwealth 2026 group. It's not uh, Commonwealth 100 anymore, uh, since they're looking at the uh, 2026 games. Uh, and, and they're working hard at this. And you know some of the names, John. There are a lot of the ones that we talked about with that other group. It really is just the same group. Uh, but uh, Leuna and, and uh, Fengate and a number of other big money players are involved in this whole thing. Uh, City Council is going to have to make a decision about this pretty soon. Now, we've been told that there's going to be a lot of private sector support and money, and we've been told that the federal and probably the provincial government are going to pony up. They always have, so you got to wonder in a situation like that. And, and the question I pose to Mayor Eisenberger is, given the fact that, yeah, there's going to be this money that you just talked about for uh, cities that are recovering, uh, Hamilton always has to kind of squeeze their way in there at the feeding trough to try to get some of that. This could be a backdoor way to simply say, whoa, 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 this is a different pot of infrastructure money for Commonwealth Games, and, and it might be a way for Hamilton to get a better deal out of this, and, and at the same time being able to host the games with what we're told are going to be some financial benefits. But does council have the foresight to, and, and the vision to do something like that? I think... Uh... Council will have to see the numbers. I mean, if there is private sector money and there is federal and provincial money available, I think before council will will jump on it, I think they'll really want to see the numbers. And, uh, you know, they've been in there a couple of times with the PowerPoints and all of that, but now I think it'll have to be show me the money, uh, exactly what is this going to cost us. And, of course, uh, the organizers will quite rightly say that they can't really do that, until uh, they know whether or not they have the game. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg. But I don't see this council uh, uh, moving forward uh, without a, a much clearer sense of exactly what it's being asked to provide. Well, the, conf- the, the conversations right now, as, as we understand it, are going on between the International Federation and and this group. I mean, they seem to have just basically cut out all the red tape. And, and you know, the, the mindset here seems to be, it's yours if you want it, guys. Uh, but you got to let us know. Uh, and, and the fact that they've shortened the time frame by four years, I, I don't think puts them in a critical situation, but it does shorten the, uh, the time frames where decisions have to be made. It, that's not something city council does well. No, they don't, they don't work well with a gun to their head. Uh, they never have. And uh, so it, I, I think it's challenging, to be honest. Um, uh, no, I, I think if it can be reframed, if it can be framed, in the context of uh, this is part of uh, a recovery package from COVID that, you know, that, that uh, we'll, we'll get some investment in facilities and so on that we, that we might, you know, that are now going to be accelerated uh, that we wouldn't normally get if we weren't involved in the games. I think, I think that case can, can certainly be made. But um, the timing, frankly, is not great. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I used to have a boss that would say to me, if you want a quick answer, it's no. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, things could look completely different in two or three months. And if, you know, if if the uh, discussion can be extended uh, a little further down the road, things might look quite a bit different in uh, three or four months when the economy is hopefully uh, on the rebound. But, you know, to go there now when you have all these competing demands, you've got airlines that are saying they're going to go broke. You've got Phil Crawley from the Globe and Mail saying that uh, the news industry needs a bailout. You've got, uh, you know, municipalities looking for over a billion dollars. It, it It's not so much that it diminishes the value of the proposition. It's just that there's just so much noise. It's uh, The timing is not great. 
Well, I, I know some people are hearkening back to, you know, FDR's whole stuff, you know, but the Tennessee Valley projects and things like that. I mean, one of the key things when you're coming about out of an economic conundrum like we are now is to get people back to work. And I know that that's one of the focus that, that Leuna has. Uh, they want their members to work. And if we're going to get these games, those guys are going to be building stuff. And that's, that's, that's jobs. Those are the sorts of things that kind of do crawl out and get you back out from under that rock. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'd like to think I, I can probably go around that council table now virtually uh, and tell you the three or four people that are probably going to say no way, no under any circumstances. Uh, so it's never going to be unanimous, I would think. But I mean, there may be, but uh, a consensus. But boy, this it's going to take a lot of convincing. I take your point. It, it, I think that's what's going to have to happen. Yeah, and I mean, there's no question that money invested in infrastructure is a is a better investment than money just handed out the door the way we're doing it now, even though. That's vitally needed. Um, uh, there's no question that uh, investments in infrastructure are are different, uh, can be viewed differently in terms of the value than uh, money that's just handed out to be uh, spent to keep prop up industries. So um, I, I'm not pessimistic about it. I'm just I, I just think the challenge has become somewhat greater. Well, and again, it's not as if they're going to have to decide about that next week, but I, I know that in the next council meeting or the one after that, uh, there is going to be an updated presentation, and I think they are, if not bring a sense of urgency, but at least I make council aware of the fact that, look, we have to make this decision sooner than later. And, and, and every time I see something like that, John, I think back to God knows how many projects. I mean, you know, we, we could be here till 11 o'clock today just listing them. Uh, the last one that comes to mind, though, is LRT, you know, where they kept kicking that down the road with, what about this, what about this? And, and, and like so many other projects, of course, the more they delayed, the higher the cost went for it. And, and now we are where we are. Which I don't think too many people are even aware of uh, where we are with that now yet. yet. Uh, and there's some interesting stories about that that I know I'm going to read about in the Bay Observer about uh, how some people even want to tie some of these capital projects together. But a discussion well, for yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you can at this stage of the game, uh, you can throw everything into the hopper, I think, and and describe it as uh, COVID recovery. And if if that accelerates its viability, uh, so be it. But uh, at some point, uh, this crisis will be over, and uh, we'll be looking at all these issues uh, more rationally, probably, than we are now. And um, But uh, really, we're in the hands of this uh, crisis right now, and to try to do these kind of four-year down-the-road plans uh, it, with this going on, it, it certainly complicates it. it certainly does. Uh, as always, John, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We mentioned the Prime Minister a second ago, and uh, he's been doing these daily briefings, well, since uh, the shutdown started some months ago now. Seems years ago to some of you. But, uh, and, and I know there are some people that are thinking, well, the worst is over. Well, not really. And the, the Prime Minister had this cautionous word yesterday. As we move forward through the summer and obviously into the fall, we are ready to act extremely quickly uh, so that the population at large won't be in situations of having to go back into confinement. But that depends on citizens doing their part. It also depends on having that testing capacity, and that's what we're moving forward on. Uh, and again, the reference there is to this second wave that so many people have talked about. Uh, this is uh, not the end, uh, as some would suggest. If I can paraphrase Churchill, it's not even the end of the beginning, in some people's minds anyway. So what are we in for, and, and just how severe is it going to be? Are 
do you believe Donald Trump, who says it's probably never even going to happen? Uh, Dr. Todd Coleman is a Ph.D. assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Wilfrid Laurier University, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us some insight into this. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me again. Um, let me ask you the obvious question then. Is, is it inevitable, Doctor, as some people are suggesting, that there will be a, a, some kind of a second wave probably in the fall or into the winter next year? Uh, there's a high high probability of it, uh, just thinking about our habits and what ends up happening. If there's still uh, remote uh, community transmission happening uh, at that point, once we start spending more time indoors with other people around, the probability of transmission just ends up going higher. So there's a possibility of that. But again, as with most uh, things uh, involved with COVID-19, uh, it's still an uncertainty. Is it because of the community spread that just that we're going to be out and about and, uh, and, and mingling with each other, maybe obviously more so than we have for the last couple of weeks and months, really? Uh, is that it itself, or does the, does the virus play a role in this? I mean, we've seen, I, I don't know if it's a fair analogy, but I mean, we'll see like a, a, a hurricane uh, that looks like it's given its best shot, and then it kind of goes over and st- backs up back over to the ocean and seems to gain more strength and takes another run at some other place. I, I, I'm getting some si- sense that maybe that's what this virus is doing, is that is that these things can, can kind of rebuild themselves and reinvent themselves in some way, shape, or form. Is that a possibility, too? Uh, it's, it is a possibility. I think it, it is the characteristics of the virus itself that allow for uh, most people, uh, including myself, to say that there's a high probability of a second wave is that though it's those community cases and it's those uh, uh, asymptomatic cases. So now we're getting better estimates of how many of the cases are asymptomatic. Uh, and on the low end, it seems to be one in five or one in six of actual cases are asymptomatic. And that just means that we're not catching them. Uh, the, the provincial officials aren't, uh, the testing, for example, in Ontario, uh, does not encourage people who are now going out, having to go to work uh, to get testing. They still require symptoms to get tested. Which is problematic, and I know the Premier has made some comments about that. We're nowhere near the numbers that we want to be. Uh, what do we need to do to, to be more, I, I guess, confident in that process to try to limit it, to try to, I, I guess, quantify exactly what could be happening and where? So the idea there is just to really make sure that in terms of the systems that we have set in place now, that the links are there to make sure that we catch uh, new infections uh, right when they happen, Uh, that we have a very efficient system of contact tracing that falls back on the testing. So those who test positive, we start figuring out uh, who they may have been in contact with, encouraging those people to get tested, uh, and really making sure that system is solid uh, and in place uh, even before we start continuing to reopen more areas. There's an interesting statistic. I remember doing a program with an in-studio panel here in, in our studio a couple of years ago, Doctor, and it was about diabetes. And uh, I, I was rather surprised uh, when uh, a couple of my expert uh, guests, uh, doctors, said, you, we 
can't quite quantify just how many people out there have diabetes because he says there's some people walking around out there that have it and don't know it. Well, we're getting the same thing with COVID, aren't we? I mean, you talked about asymptomatic. There may well be people that have had it, a mild form of it, that, that didn't realize it was COVID and, and just uh, get on with their lives. That might have been four or five weeks ago with situations like that. Is there, is there any way that we can even guesstimate just how many of the, of the population might be impacted that way? I think what we can do is get the numbers, drive them down low enough so that the public health officials can actually do the contact tracing uh, and determine how many of the asymptomatic cases uh, might be out there. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple of strategies that they can make sure that we, we do get a handle on. Uh, yeah, there's a, it, it's interesting that you, you talk about diabetes. Uh, it, it's a little bit of a contrast here because diabetes doesn't kill you within a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that being the situation, uh, and and I don't want to create the impression that you know that some people may have this and not even know it. Like, oh, I felt fine. Uh, yeah. You're asymptomatic because I mean, uh, I, we've talked to some of the people uh, that have survived this and actually have you know been in intensive care and come out of it, and they said like, even though you're surviving, it's nothing I would they would wish on anybody. I mean, it, this this can really knock you down. We know that. So what do we do? I, I, I your medical opinion on this. <laughs> Uh, because of the concern about a second wave, you know, we've been talking about, you know, the National Hockey League trying to go back and, and, and other businesses trying to go back and restaurants want to open up again. Uh, do we simply say no until we, we have a, a vaccine that's going to go like this? I mean, uh, can, we, can, we, can we be compatible uh, and, and survive this virus uh, without that. And uh, we should also, by the way, caution, I think you mentioned this last time you talked to us, doctor, uh, that uh, the, the technology and, and the, uh, the work that's going on here, the research that's going on is not just for a cure, but it's also for some medications that may help to control this as well. So we're, we're fighting this on a lot of fronts, aren't we? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of activity going on in terms of research for prevention. And, and right now, the best bet is the stuff that I've mentioned before is the testing and contact tracing. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's, in terms of, of really trying to get back to some sense of normalcy, which arguably uh, we all want, um, is we need to do it very cautiously and very slowly um, and not rush into something because otherwise we're, we've seen other pandemics where the second wave is two, three, four times as worse uh, compared to the initial wave. Yeah, and we, we can't really, at this point, I guess, judge what's going to happen. Uh, we're just about out of time. i got to ask you another question because I, I, you were on the show a couple of days ago and we talked about some possible uh, vaccines, cures, and things of this nature, and, the, and you brought up the idea about treating it once you get it. And, and you know, for other viruses and diseases, there are medications like that. Uh, and one of our listeners uh, sent me an email and said, uh, if, it, if it is the respiratory problem that seems to be uh, the one that is, is dominant here, that's really knocking people down, uh, we do have some some medications for that. They're the ventilum puffers and things of that nature. Is, I, I know I, was, I wasn't going to go down to household cleaners. I'm just talking about something that's already existing and, and well-documented as a medical uh, tool. Uh, d- does that work in a situation like that, or is this a different kind of attack that the virus takes on the lungs? See, that's a, that, that is a very, very important question, and, and it's still uncertain into exactly what uh, could potentially help. So you're, what you mentioned was uh, uh, it's attacking the lungs, and the manifestation of this particular virus and the ability to prevent that, um, we really need a, a, an actual trial, uh, similar to what we've heard, because a number of things are in trial right now in terms of prevention, 
uh, for it and see whether or not there is actually a difference between those who get the drug and don't uh, in terms of respiratory alleviation of symptoms with COVID-19. And, and as you reminded us, uh, it, that takes time. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're not going to yeah. pick up... The- we're not going to get a new story on Tuesday and said, we've done it, it's over, you know, game over. Uh, there may be a door that may open, but uh, there's a long hallway after that door gets opened before we get to where we want to be. Doctor, yeah. it's always always great to get your insight into this. Thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend and stay healthy. Thanks, you too. Thanks for having me again. Take care. Dr. Todd Coleman from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University giving us some idea uh, about uh, what we may be looking forward to. And, uh, well, like we say, there's no rapid solution that's going to come anytime soon the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the bill kelly podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts from you can also listen to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 chml i'm bill kelly thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast it's free so you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review